Hi, I'm Steve Gaynor, and this is Tone Control, Conversations with Video Game Developers. Uh, I am at the offices of Camouflage Inc. Productions. Does it have another little word LLC. after it? LLC. Yeah. Uh, with Ryan Payton, um, who is the founder of the studio, and most recently they released um, the first episode of... Okay, there's accents and stuff. <laughs> but but I, wa- I watched one of your making of videos, yeah. and I think you just pronounce it Republic. But in my brain, I'm like, a republic. A republic. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, yeah. Uh, iOS stealth adventure game, uh, Republic. And I guess by the time this comes out, maybe the second episode will be out. We don't know yet. Um, but thanks for having me in the office, Ryan. Oh, thank you, Steve. That's good. Yeah. Um, congratulations, obviously, on uh, getting the, the first part of, of Republic out there. Thank you. You guys had an exciting Kickstarter. Um, what, like a year and a half two years ago now like when did that start yeah we did our kickstarter in april of 2012 yeah 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 that sounds right yeah. um yeah uh, so it's it's been a you were you were kind of you were right there in the right in the the golden age of video game kickstarters right around when uh, uh the double fine adventure really blew up and everything yep, exactly um, well, uh, congrats on, on turning that into a real thing, being one of the one of the few video game Kickstarters I've backed that's actually come out and I've, <laughs> I've played, I feel like, since then. Yeah, no, it's exciting to see that some games are, are that, that got Kickstarted last year are finally coming out. Yeah, yeah, I mean... Or two years ago, I should say. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, so, yeah, because speaking of Double Fine Adventure, the first half of, of Broken Age just, I mean, when we're recording this, just came out, like, yesterday, the yeah, day before, yeah. so, yeah, um... Things are coming to fruition. Yeah, it's cool. Exactly. Um, so, but but you have a, um, a a long and interesting history. I feel like in the in the games industry, uh, intercontinental. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think that a lot of people know you from when uh, you were working on the the Metal Gear Solid series, and you kind of became part of the face of uh, Metal Gear Solid Four. Um, but I but you know that's that's where at least my and probably most people's um, conception of you as a game designer or game developer comes from. So you've probably told this story a million times, but how did you get into the games industry in the first place? And did you was Kojima your first mm. industry job? Yeah, so I I have told the story a lot, a lot of times, <laughs> but I, I usually tell it differently every time, so hopefully it'll be entertaining for right. people that uh, have heard it once before. And so, yeah, I, I started... I guess technically working in the games industry as a, as a journalist or as a writer. Okay. Uh, so when I graduated from university, uh, I knew that I was going to, uh, I had an option to either go into radio, uh, which I was already working in, in Seattle local radio, mm, okay. um, or I was going to utilize my uh, foreign languages and international affairs major, uh, <laughs> which was primarily focused on the Japanese. Yeah. And I didn't want to be one of those guys who said, yeah, you know, I majored in history, but I don't remember any of it. Right, so sure. I was like, you know, I should probably go and, and utilize some of the stuff I've been learning. So, well, what did, what were you doing in radio in Seattle? Uh, what, what station were you working? I for? was I was working for, um, oh man, what was it? Uh, I think it was a lot of it was like Como One Thousand, you know, AM okay. like news talk, <laughs> okay, stuff yeah. like that. And um, you're doing like like production, like on yeah, air production. I was production. Sometimes I go on air. Um, oftentimes I have like the graveyard shift or the weekend mm-hmm. shift. Sure. And there was another uh, station called like, I think it's KVI or something like that, and uh, they had some really weird. Basically, people just bought on airtime on the yeah, weekends. Okay. So, like, doctors would or construction workers would, and they just basically, like, hawk their, their, their services. <laughs> and they'd have people call in. It was a live show. 
Yeah. Um, but they would be paying, I don't know, I my just pure speculation, but like, you know, maybe a thousand dollars an hour to basically just come on the to air have and just, the airwaves to themselves. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you know, some some guys are really good, some some guys are really bad. <laughs> um, but uh, I didn't have an opportunity to be a, an engineer and a producer for Seattle Mariners radio. Oh wow, really? And I thought, okay, that could be kinda of cool. I'm a yeah. big fan of baseball. But it was really kind of like, you know, as in many parts of your life you have these kind of forks in the road. Yeah. And I decided that at the end of the day, I don't know if I want to be in radio. My passion really is in games. Sure. And I can't get a game job out of the out of out of college because I I started as a computer science major because I wanted to get into games. Yeah. But I realized by sophomore year that I sucked at, at math, <laughs> and so I uh, moved over to Japanese. And I I kind of thought the dream was dead a little bit, um, but the dream kind of came back alive um, when I signed up for this thing called the Jet Program. Oh yeah. Um, which is like you know Japanese government sponsored a program to get foreigners to move out to Japan and teach English yeah. in junior highs and high schools. Yeah, I, I've I've known some people that have done similar. Um, <clears throat> Jet wasn't the one that had the pink bunny and like no, got was, shut down. Yeah, that right? was Nova. Okay, because yeah. I knew people who were in that program when it was suddenly all the doors were locked when they showed up yeah, for work. Yeah. I was uh, in Japan when that happened. Yeah, the foreigners are stuck in Japan. They can't leave. Yep. And they're all, they don't have any jobs. <laughs> they, have a, they don't have a, a permission to work anywhere else. Yeah, it's, it was exactly. Um, but, yeah, you were in you were in the more legit <laughs> I was in, like, yeah, the officially government-sponsored one. Yeah. So, so you went over to Japan for that. So you were there. It got me kind of, yeah, it got me to Japan. Yeah. Which is a big step, I think. Um, what year was that? That was in 2003. Okay. And then uh, what I also did before, as I was packing my bags... Um, I was writing uh, video game reviews for our college newspaper at University of Puget Sound, so I was mm-hmm. reviewing games like, at the time that came out, were Metroid Prime and Internal Darkness and things yeah. like that. And I, I sent clippings of those to my favorite video game magazine at the time, which was XBN, Xbox Nation Magazine. And it was really well, real, well done, yeah. uh, Zip Davis publication. I sent them to the editor there, Greg Orlando, and I said, hey, I'm moving to Japan in a couple months. I'd love to be like your Japanese correspondent. And he said, send me some samples. I sent him the school newspapers. Yeah. And he liked what he read. So he said, you got the gig. And so That's from there, awesome. so I moved to Japan. I started teaching English in this fishing village with no other foreigners in the space. It was, you know, 15, 20,000 person village, basically a little small town. Yeah. Um, not my pa- teaching is not my passion and neither is teaching, especially not teaching English. Yeah. Um, but it was a... Without getting into too much detail, like in Japan, in, in rural Japan, they, they have this phenomenon with there's not a lot of not a lot of young people or, or adults are having children, sure. and all the young people are moving to big bigger cities, and so these these rural areas are just filled with basically old people, and and the schools are shutting down. So I'm working at this huge, massive school that used to have thousands of kids going to. It's like 300 kids left. Oh wow! Most of the school or most of the classrooms are totally empty. Yeah, it's like this ghost town. It feels like you're like in a Japanese horror movie. Yeah, and I only have one class a week. And I'm being paid $35,000 a month, I guess, <laughs> to teach one class a week. And so, meanwhile, all I'm doing for... Was that, you mean 35,000 yen? Yeah. 30, yeah. Okay, because I was like... No, wow, I was, was $35,000 a year. Oh, a year, yeah. okay. You, yeah. You said month. I was like, Oh, did I say month? Shit. Oh, shit. That yeah. can't be right. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but Sorry. yeah, yeah. No, it's a, that's, a good, it's a, that's a good straight out of college right out salary. Of yeah, out of, to, out of school. To have like... A and couple they, hours and they, of and they pay for your they pay for your um your apartment right, and your, right. They pay for your rent so you know I was just basically my living expenses were really, really low yeah and for eight ten hours out of the day at the school I was surfing NeoGaf and writing articles <laughs> about the Japanese video game industry yeah. for OneUp.com and XBN and sure like yeah, so yeah. I had a nice dual income and that was kind of how I started that is a that that sounds like a that sounds like a, I mean. Sounds like a good time in some ways. In some mean, ways. I, I was very lonely. Sure. Right. Uh, <laughs> hanging out with internet people uh, from yeah. a tiny village in Japan. 
but uh, man, certainly memorable. I mean, how was? I, I've been to Japan, but I've only been to Kyoto and Tokyo mm-hmm. um, and Osaka, but I haven't been, you know, to the countryside. How did you find living in a small town in a foreign country? Because so, in, in a big city, I feel like there's support for like, absolutely. okay, there's going to be people from all over the world going on the subway and all that kind of stuff, right? So it was really my fault for getting sent to the the most rural area they could have sent me. Um, part of the jet program, they have a, they have you come into the Japanese uh, embassy and they have you they they, give, they interview you to see if you're you're up to the up to par or whatever. Yeah, and they. They often, the most of the time, they they inter- they, uh, they accept people that don't speak Japanese. Japanese is kind of a bonus, and so when they interview me, they interview they they check my Japanese, and so uh, I think that's when they probably put me. They check the mark of rule because I could survive out there, right? Where yeah. most people couldn't, right? And so my can speak language, yeah. won't starve. <laughs> yeah, yeah, doesn't need to go to Tokyo where everybody wants to go to Tokyo, right? Yeah. And so my plan was, I knew everybody wanted to go to Tokyo, but I requested a prefecture called Hyogo Prefecture. Mm-hmm. Hyogo Prefecture is uh, just north of like Kobe and Osaka and Kyoto. And my master plan was, I knew that ninety percent of the people in this ma- in the biggest one of the biggest prefectures in Japan lived in Kobe, which is a pretty big city. Yeah, and so I thought if I can request this one that. It, they accept a lot of jets. I can maybe move, like, yeah, live in Kobe, and it's a very, it's a simple bullet train Shinkansen ride to Kyoto, Osaka within 20 minutes, 30 minutes. Right, yeah. And then getting to Tokyo is only a couple hours. So right. that was my master plan. Well, then I get there, and this this guy, this teacher picks me up. I couldn't even find the place that they were going to send me on the map. It's, that was that small. They literally, he literally drove me three and a half hours north from Kobe, <laughs> literally to the furthest spot in the entire prefecture I could have been, is on the other side of the country, on the on the on the literally on the shore of the Sea of Japan. Uh, my place, I could see the ocean from my place. It was kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. Meanwhile, I'm like, but this is rundown place, uh, this ghost town of a town. Yeah. And my first night, like, I cried like a baby. I was like, <laughs> I made a huge mistake. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it sounds like being in giant deserted school. That's just like classic survival horror. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's like, when is the little ghost girl going exactly. to show up? Yeah, exactly. You're like looking down the hall and there's just, she's just static and like looking at you. Yeah. So you were, so you're doing that for a little while and you were getting all, you know, published articles on, on publications and stuff. So what was the, the, the bridge from there to, mm-hmm. to getting into the development side? Yeah. So what, what I was doing, uh, on most weekends, granted, my colleagues at the school have never been to Tokyo in their lives, most of them. I was going to Tokyo every weekend. I was basically spending mo- the money I was making uh, uh, from the jet program to buy flights to Tokyo, which is about an hour flight. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to take this long, long-winded path to, <laughs> to get to the nearest airport. Yeah. Um, but I'd go there and I'd cover events um, that, you know, Sega's launching Pio Pio 2 or something like that. Sure, right. And I, it, a lot of it was just an excuse because when you go, it's amazing. I'm not kind of answering your question, but That's one funny. of the amazing things about the... We're not the, here to answer the, my question. Okay. Right? Good. We're here to ramble and All just right. say good, 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 good. That makes me happy. So. <laughs> but one of the interesting things, this weird phenomenon I felt when I was in rural Japan, one of them was I realized that I love football. Hmm. I don't know why. All right. I just, all of a sudden, I, you get these weird cravings when you're in a foreign country and you're not sure. with your family and your friends. And I begged my mom to send me a football. And so that was like one of the things. And one of the other things I realized is that I love, I love uh, coffee. And, I, and I, miss, I miss like Starbucks and like sure. these places. So part of the excuse of going to Tokyo is I would just go and eat. Like I go to, like, I go to Wendy's. I never go to Wendy's here, <laughs> but I wanted to go to Wendy's in yeah, Japan. Sure. Or I wanted to go to Starbucks or whatever. And yeah. I would just hang out in those places as much as possible. So, um, but what, one of the big trips that I had planned was I was going to spend 
all the money I was making from Ziff and from a lot, some of them from Jet was I would, I would fly to LA to cover E3. Mm, yeah. So I saved up my vacation time and I took a week off and I flew to E3. This is E3 2005. So I'd already yeah. been working in Japan for about a year and a half. Mm-hmm. And uh, and yeah, so I uh, I got to I got to uh, to uh, the LA Convention Center after the 24 hour trek that it took. Yeah. I'm exhausted. I literally pass out in front of the. Konami booth showing the Metal Gear Solid 3 subsistence trailer. <laughs> and I wake up, I don't know how much, how long I was out for, but I first checked my back pocket to make sure my wallet was still in it. And thankfully, <laughs> it was still there. And I'm, this is like, what am I doing? I'm exhausted. I'm, I'm sick. And uh, Was that the first time you've been back in the States after you I, went to Japan? I'll, no, I went back like, for okay. Christmas and things okay. like that. Because yeah, yeah. uh, like, I, you know, when, when I go out of country, mm-hmm. it's surprising to me how quickly... I have that feeling of like this is cool. It'll be really good just to yeah. <laughs> be back at my house. Everyone speaks English, you know, because it's just like there's all. I, I feel like, it. and you have the advantage of obviously speaking the language when you're over there. But just being out of your native environment, mm-hmm. it's like every day is just more like just takes more thought. And it does. Like I feel like I, I get. Like you're saying, like tight, like more exhausted yeah, just do. by like living your daily life Absolutely. when you're not in your own environment. Absolutely. Um, so I imagine being back stateside was also sort of like a nice uh, change of pace, Absolutely. having been out of the out of the country for so long. Absolutely, no, I definitely felt that. Yeah, um, and little did I know that I would be doing that trip from Japan to LA. 40 times or so during the, the development of Metal Gear. Yeah, Jesus. I did that. But, um, but so, but, yeah, yeah, so you're at the, at I'm the at the Konami center. booth, yeah, passed out in front of this. And I, and meanwhile, a month or two before that, I finally got around to playing Metal Gear, Metal Gear Solid 3, which yeah. came out in 2004, mm-hmm. that, that Christmas holiday time, where it was one of the best times for games ever. It was like Metroid Prime 2, San Andreas, Metal Gear Solid 3, Halo 2. It was like lots of big games. I finally yeah. got around to playing it, and it blew me away. I was, yeah. I was like, this game is incredible. And I know you're a fan of MGS3, too. Yeah, MGS3 is fantastic. I, I loved it a lot. I was, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, I, I also put off playing it for a while because I felt really personally burned by MGS2. I, the balance of, like, <laughs> God, there's too much yeah, yeah. not playing a game. Yeah. You know, so much listening and watching and stuff that I was just sort of like, all right, I learned my lesson. But I kept hearing... Mm. Metal Gear Solid 3 is so good. It's really interesting. There's a little survival stuff. I finally played it, and I was like, holy shit, I yeah. should have played this earlier. Because, yeah, yeah, it's like, I I feel like the narrative gameplay balance is, like, way better, and mm-hmm. I found the characters to be really interesting mm-hmm. in the setting and, and everything else. And then, um, yeah, Subsistence, I thought, was a really good update with, like, the free camera yeah, and everything. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> I was actually a tester at Sony when Subsistence came in. No kidding. Um I played the original version at home, and then um, I was a cert tester at, at Sony in... Uh, in Foster City? Yeah, in Foster yeah. City. Um, and, and they did, you know, they were like, oh, okay, who's actually, who's played through Metal Gear Solid 3 already? And I was like, I have no. Like, okay, good, just get through this as quick as you can, basically. Mm-hmm. And I got to replay through with the subsistence stuff. It was cool. I'll, I'll bring this up because I'll forget to bring it up later, but one of the one of my more memorable moments of, of shipping MGS4 was delivering the final Blu-rays to Foster City from mm. Japan because it's quicker to send it on, to send a Human lowly guy being. like me yeah. <laughs> on an airplane than it is to do it over the internet at the time at least. Uh, and uh, 
one of the things I, I asked them to do, and they said that nobody's ever asked them to do, is I said, I want to meet the test team. <laughs> and I want to ask them how they feel about the game. Yeah. Because um, I think this was our final cert, or maybe our next to final cert. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got to spend, like, basically, like, 30 minutes with guys, like, that used to work, probably work with or the same kind of group. Yeah. And it was... They were they were like all wide eyed and like bushy tailed like I can't believe we're talking to somebody who actually worked on a, one of the games we tested. It yeah. was really really fascinating. Yeah, well, because I mean, you know, it, at least when I was there, I assume still there, um, you know, cert testers are all contractors. You know, actually yeah, employed yeah. by Sony totally. or contractors, and so and it's very um, partitioned from like the dev side. So yeah, having like a guy from Kojima Productions come and like right. that sounds. I mean, that's awesome. Yeah, um, and and did you? I mean, not to get too yeah, far yeah, ahead, course, but course. did you? How was that? How was their perspective? Like, did you find interesting things from from their time with the game? Talking to them, yeah, it was it was interesting that what I found. I think that the big, biggest takeaway that I remember I had was that people kept saying how much they loved the game, and that they said they test when they test games, they get really sick of them very quickly. But they said that they kept finding things that they liked about the game, and that eased a lot of my fears because myself, and along with a lot of the people on that development team, actually thought that the game was going to review poorly. Or not as good as MGS three. You didn't review poorly, that's for uh, sure. Hell no. Yeah, like, <laughs> I think I think it's like one of the highest review games of this past generation. It is sure. huge. I think maybe top ten. Yeah. Um, now that's something that that I really appreciate about um, Kojima's games is that it seems like he's really um, deeply invested in putting a lot of stuff into the game that most players aren't going to find, mm-hmm. especially not their first time through, because, you know, they're relatively linear games, they're very story-focused, the cutscenes are always going to be the same, except if you have, like, different face paint on or something. Right. Yep. Um, but there's all this weird shit, you know, um, that 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 1% of players try it, yep. and then it works, and, like, that's rad, right? Um, like, I remember <clears throat> when I was when I was testing Subsistence, I found the Easter egg of when you save in the jail cell. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Which, which I didn't know about. It was called a Guy Savage, right? Where you go into that different game. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, the thing I was amazed by was that... Okay, so I'll explain the Easter egg. But um, the thing I was amazed by is that it could get through cert. Because <laughs> yes. there, in, in Metal Gear Solid 3, like, you can you can save and quit anywhere, right? Like, yes, I mean, correct. most places you can yeah. call on the radio. And so... There's a part where you get caught and you get thrown in a jail cell. And if you save and quit in the jail cell, you load back into the game. And just without any announcement whatsoever, it's like a third-person, like, isometric, like, beat-em-up game that you're playing. And you're just running this guy around that you've never seen in a weird... There's, like, ghost monster guys that are trying to kill you. Like, what? And you have a sword and you're just slashing them. And you don't know what the hell is going on. And you're, you know, playing this weird game. And, And then, like... I, the the ghosts come up and they they kill they overwhelm you and kill you and the PlayStation Two just turns off mm-hmm. like it just hard shuts <laughs> shuts down really? the hardware yeah maybe you got a crash no no it because it, I've looked it up it's oh. part of the it's well, part of the, that. so it it shuts down the the PS Two you turn it back on and load that same save no kidding and. When you load the save again, the first thing that happens is Snake is in the bed in the jail cell. And he's like, ah, yep, yep. what? <laughs> and I was like, I can't believe they let them push a reset hardware command like from that makes inside sense, the though, game. Yeah, because otherwise, how do you get it back? How do you load the executable? Yeah. Right. Um, and, and so, like that, like so much of you know Kojima trademark stuff, that meta, mm-hmm. you know, consideration of like how you play the game, yeah. what a save game is, and all was all there. But I was just like, man. 
you guys have some pull <laughs> to be able to, to have Sony say, like, it's fine if you shut the user's hardware down without their consent, you know? We, we got away with a lot. And there's yeah. some stuff that I, I still can't even tell. But some, someday I'll, I'll talk about some of the stories of some of the exceptions that we got. They're really interesting. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah, when, you, when, you, when you sell as many copies as Metal Gear and when you're associated with the PlayStation brand like as Metal Gear used to be, at least, exactly, you can yeah. get away with a lot. Yeah. Um, okay, so, so you were... Where am I? Am you, I passed you, out in front of the Metal yeah, Gear Yeah, you're, you're wake, much like our, our that anecdote, yeah. you're waking up yes. in front of the uh, Konami booth. Where's where my wallet? <laughs> I'm in L.A., right? Uh, so, I, uh, so I'm so i covering LA, uh, yeah, E3 for, for 1UP.com. I'm getting paid maybe $200 uh, 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 an article, and they, they want me to do like the B-tier games. So I'm, I'm playing like, maybe it was like Okami mm-hmm. DS or like Beautiful Joe v- DS. And my editor, one of my editors there is James Milkey. Uh, he used to work at Q Games and Q Entertainment. Uh, and he, we, I was I literally just talking about with this with him uh, this earlier this week in New York City over pizza in Times Square. <laughs> and I said, you know, you have these moments in your life where we're talking about like those kind of, those, those forks in the road. Yeah. And I got a phone call from you. I'm work, busy working the show floor. And, and I don't know, I don't remember if I hesitated or not, but the fact that I took this phone call completely changed my life. <laughs> And the phone call was from James Melky, and he said, Ryan, I am overbooked, as he has a tendency to do. I have an interview with Hideo Kojima in 10 minutes that I can't get to. I need you to do this. I need you to go and interview <laughs> Hideo about MGS3 uh, subsistence. I said, of course. I love that game. I love MGS3. Yeah, sure, I'll be there. You yeah. know, I'm like all excited. So I run over to the, to the place, and, uh, and it's me and a couple of the journalists, and we're interviewing him about Metal Gear Solid 3 subsistence. And it's about an hour-long interview, and I'm asking him really bad nerdy questions like because i'm a young you know games journalist sure and uh and the thing that i always found really annoying about these interviews though is that a lot of the journalists after that will ask for pictures and autograph autographs mm. from like different especially japanese game creators sure and i always kind of felt that that was kind of a conflict of interest interest and i've always kind of been a little more high-minded about journalism i think in general but uh i didn't want to be that guy so yeah. i but i was very impressed with this translator his name was aki saito he was amazing and so after the interview, I decided I don't want to talk to Hideo. I want to talk to his translator. <laughs> and so Hideo, meanwhile, after all the pictures and autographs, leaves, goes to the restroom, and I'm talking to Aki about, I'm saying, how do, how do I become like a good translator like you, man? And he's like, you speak Japanese. So we started speaking in Japanese. Meanwhile, Hideo comes back from the restroom, and he looks over at me, and he says, like, why are you speaking Japanese? <laughs> and maybe he was like, felt betrayed because I was interviewing him in English, and I could understand <laughs> his, his answers. And so I said, oh, you know, I live in like southern Japan. He's like, whatever, whatever. I just fired uh, somebody, like, who, and I need to replace who I need to re- who I need to replace. Are you interested in working for me? And, <laughs> and I, all right, I haven't heard this story before. That's good. <laughs> this is okay. That because that's a that's a crazy thing. Yeah, you would never expect to happen in your well life. because I'm sitting in that interview space and I'm uh, interviewing him. I'm thinking, like a lot of journalists will actually ask people for jobs, right? Because sure, yeah. a lot of games journalists, like I was, I wanted to be in the games industry. Sure, I yeah. wanted to work on games. and But I didn't want to be that guy. Sure. But it, I like, I'm proud of the fact that I I wasn't, I didn't approach him about it, that he approached sure. me. So yeah, I feel yeah. good about that, but I didn't feel so good what, about what happened after that. <laughs> so uh, I'm all excited, right? Yeah. I'm like, well, yeah, we could talk about it. We could talk about it. It's okay. So he introduces me to somebody. Or he tells, Aki, he tells me that Aki's going to get in contact with me. Okay. So Aki and I are kind of exchanging emails over the next couple of weeks. And uh, meanwhile, you know, I do recipe three. I go back to Japan, and uh, and yeah, so then I start getting emails from one of their one of their guys uh, about 
uh, job interview. So I take the train up and I do the job interview and I thought it went okay. And then I did another one and then I had to do a third one and I'm spending a lot of money going back and forth. <laughs> sure. At the time I'm, I moved to Osaka and uh, after the third interview, I get the phone call and they say, Ryan, I'm really sorry. Like there's like 20 people that are interviewing for this job actually. And, uh, you didn't get it. Like, okay. Sure. All right, man. And so, you know, I'm, I'm kind of done with Japan. Anyway, I quit Jet. I was living in Osaka. I was running out of money. Um, and uh, I decided to move back to the States. So I actually moved all my stuff back to the Portland area. Oh, yeah. And I Because your family's from Portland, yeah, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And I'm, I'm moving in with my folks. Uh, I, I go to Costco. I buy World of Warcraft and a, like, 48-pack of Mountain Dew. <laughs> and I decide that I'm going to dedicate, the, like, this whole summer to learning about this game that I had not enough time to play. Yeah. Because at this time, World of Warcraft is, like, huge with all my friends. So yeah. I'm about three days into it. I still, like, not addicted. I'm like, what's going on, you know? <laughs> And I get this email from Konami. And meanwhile, I buy a car, and I'm starting to buy to uh, take some job interviews in the States. Yeah. And Konami emails me and says, we got it wrong. You were actually the guy that, like, who was the best interviewer, and we got people's names mixed up. Can you, <laughs> can you like, start next week? <laughs> I'm like, what? I just bought this car. Like, I'm trying to become, like, a WoW addict. I'm back at home. I moved all my stuff. I'm working on my new project. Yeah, you know, my it's new project. WoW all yeah, the time. You're right. And so... Uh, <laughs> Oh, okay. So I emailed them back. I was like, yeah, but can you guys pay for my move, please? They said, no. Well, internationally. Yeah. I mean, come on. No. Can you pay for my flight? No. <laughs> but we need you to be here for, because we're trying to announce, formally announce MGS4 at TGS. Like, son of a bitch. <laughs> so like, am I going to say no? Right? Yeah. So I packed up my stuff, moved to Japan. Sold your car. Used sold my car. Sold, yeah, yeah, sold my car. And, uh, and yeah. Jeez, man. That's intense. I, I can't even imagine <laughs> the roller coaster. Right. Of, well, and I mean, I guess it's that's one of those that's one of those things where you were. <laughs> I'm picturing the the fingers on the edge just slipping <laughs> off. Right. You're like oh, you're you're dangling over a pit of wow <laughs> and Mountain Dew. <laughs> yeah. At the last second, they grab your wrist. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, but that yeah. could have been really bad. Like I could have gone into a really bad state. <laughs> um, but. But yeah, I mean, I, you're right. It's like, unless you literally could not have the dollars to get yourself over there, it's like, you know, probably once in a lifetime opportunity kind of thing. On the other hand, what the fuck, Konami? Really? <laughs> <laughs> you can't pay for a plane flight? Yeah. Uh, but that said... Typical Japanese company. I guess, yeah. Um, I mean, every, all the numbers have to add up. I guess it wasn't in the budget. I don't know. Um, but you, you, no, it was, you, it was, you took the leap. Yep. You you went over there. Um, so that so then you were based in Tokyo, I guess, because mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, Kojima. It, at that point, well, I, I still don't actually know necessarily the relationship, but like around MGS three, Kojima Productions became a thing, mm-hmm. right? Like yes. he was it was internal to Konami yeah, until, well. yeah. um, and so now is it actually? A totally separate company. No, it's not. It's a, it's a it's a an imprint within Konami. Yeah, basically. let me explain it real quick. Sure. Because I was confused about it too. <laughs> so at E3, when I interviewed him, he was talking about it, and at, he had they had these pamphlets showing off. They were announcing Kojima Productions, and this is really where he started to get. I don't want to say the keys to the castle, but he started to get a lot more clout within the company. Yeah. So he's able to name his own studio within a Konami. Right. It's basically the equivalent of like a three four three industries within Microsoft. Sure. No true autonomy, but. It, it gives the team a sense of that they're their own entity, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. 
Um, and so he's talking about toy lines and movies and yeah. comic books, and we're gonna do all these merchandise things. And it's really just the, the, um, the I, I was there on the ground floor of this like this new thing, yeah. and it, people were not used to it within Konami, and we had special badges too that only we could go to the floor that Kojima Productions is on. No mm. normal Konami employee <laughs> can go. And, and so it makes you feel like you're part of this really special thing, but also makes you kind of an asshole. <laughs> right. And uh, and I was one of those guys. Um, I was just telling somebody who uh, interviewed me for their like school newspaper or something recently, um, and I was saying, they said, one of, what they asked me what are the things that I would have told my younger self joining Konami, and one of the things I would have told myself is to not be so arrogant. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, because you, but you get the sense, it's not an excuse, but... You know, everybody in Kojima Productions dressed nicer, and uh, you just and it's one of those you just shipped like a really high, critically clean game. Yeah, I mean, if you're at, when you're within an organization like that, you know, within like this big publisher that's shipping a lot of different stuff, and you're working on the game yep. that makes them all the money. You know, it's like they you they give they give that department special treatment, right? Yep. And obviously, that's going to influence like your own sense of, <laughs> of how awesome yeah, your you self worth. Yeah, right? exactly. Um, well, so, yeah, that that must have been one of the most interesting times to to be there when it was like turning into its own thing. Absolutely, yeah, and you could just you could just sense the momentum of that studio, and that. And so when I get there, the, for one of the first things that I do is I get called from Hideo to go into the editing bay, and they're editing the trailer for MGS Four that's going to be shown at TGS. Oh yeah, it's the first one where um, you know they show off like Snake's model, and he's like it's in the Middle Eastern setting. You know, right, you remember yeah. that trailer? And it's, Great, great trailer, um, and I was just so excited to see. I was like, "Whoa!" Because you, I mean, look at that step from MGS three to MGS four. It's right, incredible. Yeah, yeah. And I'm seeing the the PS three dev kits that look like, like refrigerators <laughs> on their side. Yeah, you know. And uh, I remember them well. Yeah, yeah but I, I mean, you can't see what I'm doing because this is audio, but imagine half of a conference table. Yeah, <laughs> you know, they or like were... a monolith from 2001 on its side, <laughs> right? Yeah, it was crazy. So. Um, but yeah, uh, it's what you were saying. But being on the ground floor, though, of being one of the first development teams in the whole world to have a PS3 dev kit, yeah, to um, know what we're doing at, at, at TGS, and also just in Japan in general, there's lots of transitions to you know the, to next the, the next gen at the time. Right. And, and at the time, going back to my arrogance, um, I was getting courted then by Microsoft mm. in, in the Xbox division in Japan. Oh, okay. And they yeah, needed sure. they're they're trying to get. Their, their leg up there, and I think, yeah, Xbox had just shipped, or was just shipping, right at the time I was starting to work at Konami, and I, I, I had, I had, I've never told anybody this, but I actually left Konami for like a day <laughs> to, to, to take this offer from Microsoft, and I basically said, I'm not coming back, because Microsoft is going to pay me, I wasn't being paid very well at Konami, but it was a much more high-profile job, but I was only at Konami for a couple months, Yeah, and, you know, I'm so glad that I, I went home that night, and I thought about it, and I said, you know, this I, I really love the guys I'm working with. I love this project. It's not all about the money. And I and I basically called up Microsoft and said, no, I'm actually not going to take the job. I'm going to go back to Konami. And thankfully, my, my boss at Konami took me back. Yeah, right. Uh, that would have been another one of those fork in the road. So I, <laughs> I think I probably would have ended up okay, but my career would have been much different and my personal happiness probably too. Definitely. I mean, it's, and it's a chicken and egg, I guess, but it seems like you have very much uh, an affinity for like you know what the Kojima approach is, I mean, I, I'm, I guess, I say that because I know of you from being associated with it, but also I feel like you know you've pulled a lot of sort of those sensibilities mm-hmm. um, into like Republic, so um, it seems like you know 
you made the call to stay with the place that resonated with you more, as far as I could. Absolutely. From the outside, anyway. No, I, I, I was kind of like, lack of a better example, like I was like kind of following my heart, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, so, something that you that you kind of uh, alluded to there was, I feel like the transition from PS2 to PS3. Um, I feel like a lot of Japanese developers kind of got lost they did. along there. Yep. Like I personally, and some of it is just purely graphics. Mm-hmm. Like a lot, I feel like a lot of last gens now uh, <clears throat> Japanese games looked like slightly upresed PS2, like PS2 games with normal maps Absolutely. on them, kind of. Yeah. But Kojima and like Capcom mm-hmm. are the two that jump out at me as like they figured out how to make their games look current gen, you know, like, in a legitimate way. Like, you know, Resident Evil 5 and Street Fighter 4 are fucking beautiful, you know. I would definitely throw in, um, like, Square Enix, like, for Final Fantasy XIII. Not Mm -hmm. a great game, but a very beautiful game. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but there's there's very few of those studios left. Yeah. So what was was the difference, um, from your experience at Kojima specifically, that allowed, you know, MGS4, which was one of the early, like, flagship you know, PS3 generation titles to, right. to ship um, to make that leap and actually look like legitimately complete, you know, in, in, it, in its kind of uh, uh, upgraded visuals and, and everything. Like what did, did they, did they, did they bring like different kind of personnel in to, to make that move or? Hmm. It's a really, it's a really interesting question. My, my answer always is like my knee jerk reaction is always that it's, it was unique within Kojima Productions, but I also think, I'm assuming that they did the same thing within Capcom and at Square Enix, is that they set their own personal bar very, very high. And even through trailers, I think they had, even before they were able to prove the tech, they had basically promised the world that this is what the game's going to look like. And and fans pointed this out, and they were correct, that MGS4 did not ship with the same fidelity as that first trailer. Yeah. Um, however, that was the bar that Hideo had set, right? And uh, and good for him because that forced the team to try to get as close as possible to that. And that's a very Metal Gear typical thing that they would do in a lot of different uh, a lot of different Kojima Productions games. And so, I like to try to one of the things that you're saying, like you know, that I try to instill um, at least with the, within camouflage is that sense of let's set the bar very high and like let's fight tooth and nail to try to get as close to that. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I mean that's the only reason. It wasn't because we brought in like new personnel. It wasn't because we had some kind of secret. Um, you know, access to different parts of the PS3 hardware. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. It's really, yeah, just... Yeah, to, no, and I know what you mean, because, I mean, I don't know, I feel like that was kind of what, you know, like the the E3 demos that that would, that uh, Irrational made for Infinite, you know, when I was there. Yeah, was yeah. Sort of like, you know, yes, they were a representation, they were aspirational, essentially, mm-hmm. you know, it was like, this is how awesome the game needs to be yes. you know and then everybody internally that's working on the thing that's actually going to go on the disc can look at that and be like that moment is what we're trying to make yeah. the game feel like this environment is what we're trying to make the world look like and you know so forth and it's um it's a really clear kind of um you know functional target for everybody to be able to refer to absolutely and so yeah if you make if you make a if you make a trailer or whatever that maybe reaches beyond what the tech's actually going to end up being capable of you're at least saying we need it to look like that. And <laughs> right. so when somebody's like, we did everything we could, we got it to 80% mm-hmm. of that, at least they knew what the target was, exactly. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's one of the things that we did on, on Republic that I'm really happy we did with like the, the Kickstarter trailer. Mm-hmm. It wasn't smoke and mirrors. I mean, it, you can still you can play it today, but 
it was very ambitious, sure. and, and, I, and I think it was the best thing. No design document, no PowerPoint presentation I could have ever done could have informed the team as well as that proof of concept, basically. Yeah. So when I saw the Ground Zeroes demo that they showed off at PAX last year or two years ago, mm-hmm. uh, you remember that one where like Snake is like crawling up like the side of the cliff? and There's there a horse. Yeah, there's a horse. Was is that the one where, I don't know, I, I've seen one of them where, oh, it was, where it was people before are that one. sitting on horses. Yeah, it was, it was like when he's infiltrating like this dark base and like, okay. they have like the helicopter come in and he drives a Jeep for literally like four seconds <laughs> um, and then gets out of it because you can tell that it's probably not working. Right. Um, but what I noticed from that and then I what I saw from this past Tokyo Game Show's uh, game uh, a demo, like gameplay demonstration was that this is exactly what happened. They that PAX demo was definitely like the proof of concept. Yeah. And then the team just spent the past year and a half trying to make it a real video game. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, so what were some of your first experiences, you know, when you actually like settled in and you were like, I, I, I think that my understanding is that your position was like producer, right? But I yeah. also heard, you know, the, the stuff that went out publicly that I read mm-hmm. about was like, you know, talking about you bringing you know, Western games like Gears of War and stuff into yep, the office yep. and being like, look, here's how gamers that are going to play this thing interact with a third-person camera and stuff like that. But, I mean, that's the stuff that you can write a, you know, story about and put it on the, the web. But, mm-hmm. like, what was your what was your day-to-day? What were you putting into the game or, like, managing when you were there? Yeah, my day-to-day, I mean, at the end of the, at the, end of the day, what, what I was responsible for was, was just localization, make sure that the game was going to be properly translated and okay. have the voiceovers and that kind of stuff. And, yeah. and for me, that wasn't exciting enough. I and mean, that's not really my, my passion was. So that was kind of like my, my quote unquote day job. Yeah. Um, but the, the big, the big, um, the big break for me, at least in this setting, cause I think I've, I've had lots of big breaks in my career. Sure. Um, but w- at, within Konami was, there was a game called Metal Gear Solid Portable Ops for mm-hmm. PSP. And, uh, it was being, uh, developed by a very small team uh, with not a lot of resources. Most of the resources are being put in MGS4. I'm yeah. still working on MGS4. I'm doing the research trips to all the different countries and things and supporting that team uh, outside of just localization. But I'm also looking at this game and that we promised was a canon MGS game mm-hmm. uh, that was not going to be like a card battle game like Acid. It was like right. a real true Metal Gear game for PSP. And the team is just exhausted. They're crunching like crazy. They didn't have, I think we had less than a year to make it. Wow. It's yeah. insane. And uh, we're using a lot of MGS3 assets in the MGS3 engine. And the, the director is exhausted. And uh, what I end up doing is I, I come in, and I'm friends with the, the, with the head of the project. And I, I said, hey, can I come in and give you guys feedback and play the game? He's like, please. We need help because everybody's so focused on MGS4. We feel like we're kind of in an island here. Yeah. So it was me and the audio director uh, named uh, Honda. And every night, because we're young and crazy, we just we would just stay up all night. We just I don't remember when I would ever sleep. I would just I would finish my day job at like eight p.m. or nine p.m. I walk over and get a new build. I on this stupid PSP dev kit with like the umbilical cord. <laughs> right. We're stuck to those things, and we play the whole game until like three or four in the morning. And we write up all of our feedback and we send it in to the team. And then they get in at you know eight or nine in the morning and they start like, whoa, I, we didn't know all these problems were there. We're kind of bug testing plus saying this is not fun. This is gonna be better. Sure. And we just kept this. And then the producer came up to me and the, the head of the project said. I want you to keep doing this. I said, okay. Yeah. So I just kept doing that for like a month, two months, something like that. And then the game started getting really good. And we're looking at like October. Oh man, what is this? October 20, uh, 2006, I want to say. Yeah, uh, that sounds right. Because I played that game, yeah, while I was still a tester. 
Oh, you, so you tested that game I too? Didn't te- I didn't test it. I had, I was only at Sony for six months, and then I worked at an independent... Not a, well, I worked at a studio in San Francisco. They were making like an MMO thing. They'd right. gone out of business. Um, but I, I borrowed another tester's PSP and played Portable oh, cool. while I was... Oh, good. So, so yeah, 2006 would be yeah. about right for that. Yeah. And so I... <clears throat> that's, the, that's the street date for it, and the game needs more time, so... I, I flew to, to San Francisco, talked to Konami, and I asked for more time with TDS permission, and they gave it to us. So they gave us two extra months. Yeah. That really was like the... I mean, really that can be huge at the end huge, of the game. Right? You right. know, like yeah, yeah. what two months can do. We did the same thing in Republic, actually. We delayed it by two months, and mm. it really helped. Yeah, yeah. So uh, anyway, we, we ship a game, and it's up like, I think IGN gave it some kind of crazy score. Maybe it was a 10 or like a 9.5 or something really yeah. high, and yeah, yeah. people seem to like the game, and Hideo... Uh, we were at a dinner, and uh, he calls me over to his table, and he says, Ryan, you did a good job on Portable Ops. And he says, I want you to do the same thing on MGS4. <laughs> so, okay, I don't know what that means, but sure, why not? So he puts <laughs> you're going to be putting a lot of hours into playing yeah, that thing. <laughs> so he puts me in front of the team and says, Ryan is going to help the game you know, be more Western-friendly. And it was a, a very, very direct criticism from not... The fans don't like to remember that it was them, but the fans were also complaining that the game was too Japanese. Sure. That the buttons and the controls... And the controls on the controls in in prior MGS games, they were pretty fucked, honestly. <laughs> like, I, and part of it is because they allowed you to do so much, yeah, right? Yeah, like, yeah. you could, like, go into first person and then lean and then aim and, you know, like... And but it means you have to be pressing six mm-hmm. buttons at yeah. the same oh, yeah, time. Exactly. If you you know and and yeah, they were just um, they they took some learning, you know, to be able to play MGS any MGS game, right? Um, and so yeah, being able to say, oh, you can play MGS four without having to just spend an hour dying and trying to memorize the buttons. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> yeah, trying yeah. to like rework your rewire your brain. Yeah, exactly. For this game. Yeah. Well, because there was there was somebody when I was when I was testing on some systems, there was a guy who another tester there who was like, I'm like, I played the game. I wasn't like awesome at the game. I could get through sure. it, etc. But like one of the other guys was just a fucking lord. Like he was a Metal Gear Solid fanatic, nice. and nice. so like um, the boss fight uh, with the guy with the bees, the yeah, pain, yeah, um, pain. He was like, oh, I know how to do this boss fight, and he jumped into the water and like goes behind one of the rocks, yeah, yeah. you know, and then he's like. If you go into first person, then hold like R one and R two, and up on the stick, you like go up on your tiptoes so you can see over the edge of the oh, rock, dude. and then you aim and you can shoot yeah. him and you can kill him without taking any damage. But like, you can't. It's like you literally are just like your hands or claws touching you're get, like, every surface every of the. And and I'm like, it's cool that in this game that you know you have to deal with having a controller. It allows you that kind of weird like, edge case mm-hmm. of, of what you can do with your character, but also, yeah, the controls to do it are pretty bananas. <laughs> they are, right? Yeah, yeah. And we, so we've, I feel like we modernized a lot of the MGS4 controls. Yeah. But not to the to the level that I even think they should have been or will mm-hmm. ever be. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, I think, so that was one of the things that I worked on. Yeah, yeah. the controls. But, really, I just I just jumped from pod to pod to pod, seeing where I could help out and, yeah. and not try to be annoying. And, uh, and well, I mean, I think it's something that's super valuable, you know, is having, like, because... Like obviously you had other jobs, right? But but every developer on a dev team, they have to spend as much of their time as possible making the game, right? So like, not very many devs have the opportunity in a lot of cases, or just the inclination to say like, I'm going to spend my afternoon just mm. playing the game, yeah, exactly. you know, and and see what it's like right now, and like maybe 
send some notes to the designer of this level or the you know whatever the, the scripter or you uh -huh. know whoever um, send it to the to the game director so you can filter it or or, or so forth um, and so you know I've I've played. I've worked on a lot of games where most of the team has not played the game mm -hmm. until it ships, mm -hmm. you know, and and that's that's totally understandable, right? Yep. Like you got a lot of animating to do. Yeah, <laughs> like yep, I get yep. it. But that said, having someone whose job isn't to be a bug tester and log crashes, but whose job is to say like, all right, I'm actually going to keep an eye on this thing and right. play it, and I my my responsibility is to be the eyes on. On what's going on and, and try to keep issues from getting you know ignored and, and stuff like I think that's incredibly valuable. Um, Absolutely. I mean, I, I going going back to Republic real quick. It was the thing that one of my biggest takeaways on this project is that I think the project really started turning around when I was doing that. But with playtesters, we'd yeah. have a playtester come in every day. Yeah. And I would sit here in this stupid conference room <laughs> all day and I'd watch people play the game. I'd take notes. I would, yeah. We would record the playthrough. I would I would then crop the video and then submit a bug. Saying like, see what's going on. It's not just for tests, but it's also just for people who are frustrated with this. Right, they're confused by this, whatever. And it's really how I want to move forward with with my career. And like this, this studio is just like basically making that my main job. It's like a very thankless job. It's not fun. Yeah, but it's necessary. And like you said, even on our team, like there were guys that admitted that they never played the game until like the last two days of development or something yeah. like that. It's very common. Yeah, because I mean, and I understand, right? Like if you're implementing you know, the save system yep. or something, like, that is an important thing that needs to get done and you don't have to play through the game yes. to be able to, like, Correct. make that as good as it, it can be, right? Um, but, yeah, no, it was really important <clears throat> to me when I was working on Bioshock 2 and Minerva's Den, like, I would, you know, play my own stuff and the other designers' levels and stuff, but, like, more importantly than that, I would try to, as much as possible, like, go to, a, like, a producer mm -hmm. and be like, can you take the afternoon... And walk, you know, take a couple hours and like walk through what we have because it's early. All the gameplays mm -hmm. in there doesn't take that long. And like, can I just hang out while you do that? Can you nice. can you send me notes when you're done and say like this is the part where I decided to stop because mm -hmm. it was too hard or I mm -hmm. got lost or, or whatever? And we would do, um, you know, team play tests uh, like specifically on the DLC. Like I have a clearer memory of that because it was a shorter time and everything. But we had like two or three like studio play tests where we were like, everybody, please. Spend your Friday afternoon, load up the DLC and play through, Good. and then send emails back. About half the people do it, yeah, you know, yeah, and like yeah. that's it's fine. Yep. Um, but but then you get you know like programmers and, and and artists and stuff who are heads down to actually like it's a way of getting like fresh playtesters essentially, mm -hmm. you know, to play that they haven't been paying attention to it to get their actual impressions of it. You know, we did that all through Gone Home. We would send builds out to like developer friends that we had, and they'd send email feedback and, and everything. I think that it's really easy to 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 lose perspective, Absolutely. you know, when you're like, okay, I know what we're trying to accomplish. I know which direction we're headed. I'll make that happen, and and you can get all the way there, and then realize that wasn't really where you needed to get. Mm -hmm. But if you had somebody, you know, a yep. few months earlier, play it and say like, are you sure about this? Yeah. Then yep. hopefully you end up in the right place. Absolutely. Um, so, so that became more of your responsibility on MGS Four. Was I assume like doing that, and then also organizing it and distributing the notes and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I, mean, I, I remember I just kept a notebook of everything I needed to do every day, and it was crazy. And it's like how I like to operate anyway. Yeah. It was like okay, Playboy is in the game now. Like get get rights for that from Playboy. Okay. Yeah. Uh, 
we were doing this other research trip to this, you know, this country. Okay, can you help get that organized? And this boss battle sucks. Can you play it? Well, I know he was asking me to do a lot of the stuff. I just did it. Um, yeah, sure. But uh, yeah, so it was a, it was a it was a great like honor and privilege to be able to basically just kind of do whatever I wanted to on that game to make it better. That was the ultimate yeah. goal. Um, I mean, I feel like. This is this is this is my impression from his Twitter. Uh-huh. I feel like uh, Kojima does a fair amount. Like I'll just see him tweet all the time, like checking game, mm-hmm. and it'll be a screenshot of like right. the menu screen or whatever. And I, it seems like he spends a lot of his time just like going through the cinematics and the content and like seeing if it's up to par and mm-hmm. like so forth. Like yeah, because that's the thing. At this point, I mean, I know that he like wrote MGS four. Right, sort of, most of it, some of it. I don't know what. It, like, that's the thing. When when someone like Kojima is the director of a studio, and he's been making games for twenty years, and like the productions are gigantic and stuff. Like, I don't know what his job exactly mm-hmm. is. You know, like, did you work very directly with him when you were there? Did you spend a lot of time like yeah. talking with him about stuff and whatnot? I did. I had a I had a great opportunity to be able to have like kind of a direct line to him. Yeah. Um, you know, also thanks to my my boss at the time, Kenny Mizumi, who worked side by side with him. Um, he was always really good about including me into discussions where he felt like it was more internationally focused, yeah, or yeah. related. Um, so yeah, that was that was great. Uh, yeah, it is. I think for the out from the out for the outside, it's really difficult to understand what Hideo does on a day to day basis. And not to take away anything of what he does, because uh, I still have a huge respect for his vision. I'm still a huge Metal Gear fan. Yeah, um, I'm extremely excited for Ground Zeroes, um, and I love Peace Walker, uh, but. Uh, I will say that the, one of my big takeaways from working there was that I really understood that it's not it's not just him, and like that's yeah. stupid. But like, yeah, it just took me, I guess, a little while to realize that, whoa, he's got a lot of really talented people working for him. Yeah, and because his name is on like the the box, right? It's like it's hard to it's I think it's hard for fans and, and journalists to really understand that. Yeah, and also they don't do a huge effort to get other developers of the game out in the in the, in the limelight, but sure. they deserve to be there because. Like, yeah, that that team is incredible. I'm sure that you worked with insanely talented people. Yeah. And I imagine, are there people on that team who have been, like, working for Konami since, like, NES days? Yeah, oh, absolutely, yeah. There's a lot of old guard. Because that is, when, like, I haven't had a lot of opportunities to work with people who have been in the industry for, like, a super long time. But when you work with somebody who is, like, shipping stuff on Super Nintendo yeah, or whatever, right. it's, like, all that accumulated experience is... Amazing to to be. It is. I, I feel like it was like a blessing, but also a curse for for as for a studio trying to modernize itself. Sure, every yeah. iteration, and I'm sure that they're experiencing it right now with their with their new game. Yeah, is that you guys? You guys, you have a lot of guys come back from the old guard, and I think they get into bad habits, you know. And they, you know, it's, it's, it's this is not this is not any kind of trade secret because I even I even talked about it publicly before. But yeah, like you said, I was bringing in Bioshock, I was bringing in Gears of War, I was bringing in modern games that these guys were. I was really starting to get really frustrated because, like, here's all these games that are doing really cool, innovative things from the West, but you assholes are standing in line for Dragon Quest V remake, like, remake of a remake, <laughs> at, outside of Yodobashi Camera in Akihabara, like, at, a, at 6 o'clock in the morning. You've already played this game five times over, <laughs> and you won't sit there and play Gears of War with me online yeah. with all these other guys. Yeah. Now, a lot of guys in the team were really open to it. They went yeah. out and bought Xboxes. They got Xbox Live, and we'd sit there, and we'd go home, and we'd play Gears. Right. It was really fun. Yeah. One of my best memories of that project, but there were a lot of people, and not just in Konami, but the whole Japanese game industry that would just best forget that any non-Japanese game exists, and they'd right. be totally content playing really 
like retro games. But yeah, it's really weird. So I mean, it's a familiarity thing, right? It's yeah. like this is what I grew up on. This is what I'm yeah. Going. This is what I, this, this is my nostalgia. comfort zone. Yeah, yeah, this is what I'm into. Uh, I don't know what this other thing's about. I don't really want to put the effort into like have to understand a new different thing, right? Yeah, but like, I guess if you're working on a development team that's supposed to be itching all that nostalgia, yeah. fine. But if you're at an international studio like Kojima Productions, yeah, yeah. this is where I'm getting kind of pissed, but like, I'm just <laughs> thinking about it. But like, you have an ob- obligation yeah. to play anything and everything under the sun. You have to get closer to what your audience is going to be expecting and understand that. Right, right? Yeah, if you want to be competitive. Yeah, because you aren't just selling to dudes who are buying the Dragon Quest remake yeah. in Akihabara. That said, I think, I'm, I'm imagining it's probably gotten better over there mm-hmm. because, you know, they're trying to tackle open world and I'm, I'm assuming that they had a mandate that everybody's got to play Fallout or everybody's got to play right. Red Dead or something like that. Yeah, 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 Red Dead probably. Probably big, a lot of big, Red Dead. Big point of, re- of, of reference. Um, so, so you were there through ship, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and you worked on some stuff after after the game came out. Like, you, were, you worked on Peace Walker and stuff. So I, the way that Konami does, they don't pay you overtime for all your weekends and, and late nights and stuff like that, but they do give you time off. Uh, okay. They time off. So I had accumulated about three or four months, I think, of vacation. Okay. So after we shipped, well. So is it like the more overtime you do, the more uh, time off you get? Yeah, that's oh, correct. Wow. But okay. you have to get approval to get sure. out to do overtime. So it's okay. not like you can just sit yeah. and read a book. But if you are... Staying there past midnight every night, you're yeah. gonna have a better vacation in front of you. Yeah, you? absolutely, yeah. and that was really nice. But the, I have so many war stories that I never told. <laughs> we don't have all day to sit there and reminisce about. What's the, the, what's, the, what's the one that's on your mind right now? Well, it's the one that's on my mind right now is that the whole team is now it's like dead. Like the crunch was intense. Uh, I worked pretty much every weekend for three years, uh, and I worked till midnight most nights. And I was I was young. I think that's why I was able to do it, but. Everybody goes on vacation except for me and Ken and a couple other people, and because now we got to do the, we have now we have to finalize this epic making of Blu-ray. Oh, okay. That's going to be in this collector's, collector's edition, and I'm working with Victor Lucas on it in Vancouver, and it's this massive undertaking. It's all like high, super high res. Like we we archive every single old tape that Konami ever had on Metal Gear. I mean, hundreds of hours of footage. It's this epic, like hour and a half long, like separate blu-ray yeah blu-ray's new still so like, like uh, submitting that the data for that is huge and is intense i'm flying back and forth to canada to get this thing done it's their systems are crashing all this crazy <laughs> stuff is happening meanwhile we also need a, a launch trailer for the game and we decided to do it in, in los angeles with like a trailer house yeah and so i'm head of that project now apparently so <laughs> uh that was a huge undertaking too so i'm like trying to ship this trailer trying to ship this making a video trying to get press ready to you know to come into the play of the game it's just, uh, it was really intense, but um, we had the, we, I was at the midnight launch, like, signing copies of the game along with uh, with Ken and uh, David Hayter and mm, Carly yeah. Payton and, uh, and Best Buy on La Brea that doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> and uh, and that was surreal, right, to be there for my real, I mean, Portable Ops, I, I, I wasn't there from the very beginning, but I was there from the very beginning of MGS4. Yeah. And working three years on it and then shipping that game and having my folks there, my brother there. Yeah. And uh, seeing 350 people waiting in line for it and... <laughs> And it's just, it was awesome. It yeah. was amazing. And after that, then I went home and had a three-month three, three month break. Nice. So did that, I know that um, you spent some amount of time at Microsoft. You, yeah. you, you ended up taking a Microsoft job after that earlier uh, change of heart. Was that, was it like, did you take your break your, and then right. decide, I want to stay in the States, basically? So what happened was, like, I assume, did you take your break, like, here, yeah, it's basically you know, with like, your family? Yeah, I, like, I flew up to Portland, yeah. hung out with my family, uh, 
funny enough, I loaded up Halo 3, play <laughs> it, and uh, I'm only about... I wasn't sure if I was going to leave Konami or not. Now, we had already kind of talked about early Peace Walker stuff and early Rising stuff. Yeah. Um, but uh, I was at home just kind of decompressing, playing Too Human as well. It was funny. And uh, getting phone calls, weird phone calls my mom wasn't letting me answer from the hospital. And so she then, like, literally three or four days into my stay for my three-month vacation or whatever, she sits the team down and says, I've been diagnosed with breast cancer, so oh, wow. things are going to change around here. Yeah. My dad looks to me and he looks at my brother. He says, you're in school. You can't, you gotta, you can't take care of mom. Yeah. But your brother will. And I'm like, I guess I am. He's <laughs> like, I, we, need you to, we need you to stay yeah. here. Like, this is a perfect timing. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, maybe you just leave your job. Wow, yeah. I'm like, yeah, you know, kind of after five years in Japan, I think I was ready for yeah, something yeah. different. So, Well, and you had some yeah, serious, some serious stuff. stuff to deal with. Yeah, right? so I was yeah. like, yeah, I'll take care of mom. That sounds good to me. So I yeah. decided to find a job, like, in the, in the, in the area. Yeah. Thankfully, my mom's good. She's okay, doing good. good now. But, I, was, uh, I, was hoping, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was hoping that it turned out okay. No, it turned out fine. Yeah, she's good. really good. But uh, thanks a lot to my dad and to my brother, too. Yeah, but, yeah. So. But, yeah, so... the. Not exaggerating, the the moment that word got out by on Kotaku that I had left Metal Gear, I want to say it was within like ten to fifteen minutes. I got a, a, a Facebook message from a Microsoft recruiter. <laughs> so they're looking for a director of a new Halo game, yeah. and uh, they they've been following my career pretty closely. Right. And so uh, yeah, I, I I drove up to to Redmond and, and did a bunch of interviews and got the job. And uh, yeah, I was on an unannounced Halo project as creative director at the age of what like twenty. This is two. This is two thousand eight. So I was like, what? I was a twenty seven. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, probably too young to be doing that, something like That's that. That's a well, and this. I mean, not to, not to, uh, uh, you know, um, give too little credit for your experience up to that point, but like being the director of like such a huge mm-hmm. title, you know, at a company you haven't worked at before. Right. Like, I mean, for anybody, that's going to be a huge undertaking to, like, get acclimated yeah. and, like, get everything aligned and actually, you know. Well, to develop a game in, in in a country that I never developed a game before. Like, sure. All I had was this Japanese background. Yeah. And, and the, to be honest, I, you know, a lot of the ways they make video games is really weird. Yeah. Yeah, sure. You know. And, and it seems like also a huge leap just from type of game, from approach to game, style of, like, narrative and gameplay and expectation, you know, player expectations. Um, I I will I will say, I sure do wonder what the Ryan Payton <laughs> Halo would have ended up looking like, because I bet it would not have been much like other Halos we've played. Or, I guess, who knows, depends on how much you actually get through, right? Because Microsoft is such a huge organization. I don't know, even know how much autonomy, like someone in charge of one of those projects would have, but... Let's say early on we had quite a bit. Yeah. And uh, we built a great team. Yeah. And uh, I spent most of my time, not so much on the creative, but actually just, actually just recruiting. Sure. Because uh, that was, like, that was building up like 343, three, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. And um, so, like, stalking people from the <laughs> Bioshock 2 team, for example, like Emmy Chung. <laughs> yeah. Uh, trying to convince her to come over, which she eventually did. Yeah. Yeah, I worked with Emmy on, on Bioshock yeah, 2. Exactly. She's like a multiplayer and, and UI designer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it was fun. As I mean, you're working at Microsoft. You can give people pretty good salaries. Right. You just call them up or email them and like, hey, you want to work on Halo? <laughs> and, uh, you know, it takes some people some convincing, but yeah. it was really exciting. I felt like we're building something really special and really yeah. cool. And, the, and, yeah, as you can expect, I can't talk about too much about what I was creating, but the, uh, let's just say it was, it was very ambitious. Yeah. Um, but it was, my, my, my public statement of it, and it is true, is that um, it was 
I think it was the right time for the franchise of that type of game, but it wasn't the right game for a new studio. Sure. I think yeah. I think if I could have gone back in time, I think I probably would have suggested that we remade Halo One. Like they did like the Halo one remake. Yeah. Um, but not outsource it, but actually do it internally. Yeah. So we can learn the tools that we can learn how to ship a game as a team. Right. I yep. think that probably would have been the smartest thing. Yeah, because I mean <clears throat> I was there really early on Bioshock Two and yeah, you yeah you experienced like, there's so many parallels. With yeah, that. I'm I'm su- like I'm one of the things that I think is most impressive about about what I saw go on there was just that like they were you know they were able to build a studio and a game starting from like eight people mm-hmm. in a year and a half. Yep, you know yep. and and like you know say what you will about what the reception was or whatever, but just like the the bare facts of like okay we staffed up and made a really got a really talented team together and aligned and working towards mm-hmm. one goal and actually got a game out the door yep. in that time period was uh, a pretty incredible feat and i Absolutely. think that it was it was feasible because at some point it was like okay we're making a sequel to bioshock we're making you know mm-hmm. more bioshock yep. with like some new stuff on it but but like you said it gave the team that was still coalescing the ability to say, okay, we're working in kind of like more known territory, mm-hmm. you know, because I think that you're right. If it had been a crazy ambitious thing that bore less resemblance to the first game, it's like you can't do all of those things at the same time, you no. know. Yeah. Other, it would have taken a long time. Yeah. Right, <laughs> a right. lot of tears. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And in our case, uh, not very much more time was going to be added on, you know, because, like, 2K is like, we need something between, Mm -hmm. you know, the first game and Infinite. Like, you aren't going to take three or four years on this thing. It's not happening, you know. Yeah, but isn't it... uh, I remember reading a lot of stuff about Bioshock 2, or, like, looking at the first, like, the first trailer, too, it seemed like there was a lot more ambition that ended up not being realized in the the, the final product, right? I, I think that, yeah, and I think that was the difference, is, like, you start out from a point of, like, we can do whatever, and then the reality sets in of, like, well, you gotta get something on a disc if we're not, like, putting... If we're not making something as playable and, like, compelling for what it is by a certain point, we're just not gonna cross the finish line because of all those things. Like, we still only have half of our staff, you know, on the ground because we're mm-hmm. still hiring, yep. like, you know, and, and so forth. So I think there was, during the development of that game, some early days where it was sort of like, you know, hey, we'll... Though. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll add this and then, and it'll be... Uh, it, it'll... There'll be way more question marks, you know, and at some point it's like, all right, we have to actually buckle down, mm. you know, and, and and take what we've gotten from that process and integrate it in, but overall, yeah, you know, it has to end up either, like you are saying, being more conservative or taking the extra years, <laughs> you know. Um, but you know what's really hard is to recruit people to a new project and say, like, it's going to be a conservative, like, it's going to be the right bet, it's going to be the safe bet, right. right? And it's so hard, man. Yeah. Well, I mean, at least you do have the the upside in your case of saying, like, it's Halo. Like, mm-hmm. maybe it's not a crazy new Halo that's nothing like Halo, but, like, you want to work on Halo? It's like, and, and same with us. It's like, you like Bioshock? Yep, yep. Bioshock's great. You want to work on a sequel to Bioshock? Kind of, regardless of what it actually form it takes. And it's like, yeah, a lot of people are going to jump on. Like, I mean, you know, it was my my first design job after I had shipped an expansion pack, you know? Yeah. So, like, you can get people that maybe they don't have, like, all the experience in the world, but it's like, I want to work on a big yeah, game exactly. and throw everything into it, you know? Um, but, yeah, how long how long were you uh, at Microsoft for? It was three years. Oh, wow. Yeah. I didn't know it was that long. Yeah, so a lot of people rec- you know, remember me or recognize me from the Metal Gear days. 
but a big part of that was because I was doing the podcast there and I was doing a lot of interviews and things. Sure. But on, on Halo, we didn't have uh, Halo Four wasn't announced until after I left. Yeah. So I really wasn't doing any press for it and things right. like that. So I really, I'm, and I'm happy about this. I did not become the face of Halo Four, whereas sure. I would have obviously after the, the announcement. And uh, and not to say that I'm not, I don't want to disassociate myself with the game or whatever, but uh, um, you know, I, I, I left, and I think it would have been harder for me on a, just on an emotional level to be have been like publicly associated with it so much and, and then, then to leave, not right? be there right yeah. so then what was the you know what was the 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 process going from that to camouflage mm-hmm. like i feel like there wasn't a huge gap between you leaving microsoft and then and then starting to talk about what you were going to do with with camouflage and everything, yeah. The, I don't, yeah, I, have to, I don't remember it very well either. But like, I remember, <laughs> yeah. like, I remember leaving. Well, did, did you leave and then say, "What am I going to do now?" Or were you thinking, "I'd really like to do something else like this," and that was part of what motivated you to to leave? Yeah, I, I had a I had a pretty good plan in place when I left. Okay. Um, and uh, to be totally honest, I think I probably stayed a little longer at Microsoft than I needed to needed to. Um, but it, it was scary to leave, you know, because you're getting. You're getting a paycheck every month, and you have like health benefits and all that kind of stuff. And so it was scary, but you know, eventually, just like you know, this is not a place for me. Yeah, and, uh, sure. And things happen with my job that you know I'm not super proud of. And so, uh, yeah, I left the studio, and literally within a month, I was pitching a new game to publishers. Yeah. So I got I, I hit the ground running for sure. Was were you pitching the earliest version of Republic, or I was, was it something? Okay, yeah. I was basically it turned into Republic. It did. Yeah. I, it, the name was still. It, I had the name pretty early on. Okay. And it was I was pitching a game uh, that was going to be first and best facial performance on iOS. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was going to be about a game where you interact with a with an AI on the other side of the device. Yeah, but it was going to be much more kind of uh, multiple dialogue choices mm-hmm. and not self action. It was more like you're calling these different people in this facility, and uh, you're kind of working, you're bouncing, you're kind of putting people pitting them against each other. And I really want to have a very sandboxy story. Um, so it's kind of, of like a paths. social engineering kind of thing, kind of. like who you have alliances with. Yeah, and that stuff. kind of stuff. Okay, and and I thought it'd be a good project for a first studio, for early studio. The big the big technological bet would be the facial performance stuff, mm-hmm. but we have to worry about you know building you know nav meshes and mm-hmm. you know huge environments and all that kind of stuff and enemy types, blah blah blah. Yeah. So I pitched it, and I I haven't got permission from this publisher if I could say that I pitched to them or not, but, <laughs> but someday I will, and I think they're going to say okay because it's a, it's an interesting. Uh, it's an interesting wrinkle into the hmm. story, but uh, I pitched pitched to a number of places. But one of these guys in particular, um, they gave me some really great feedback, and they were they were probably the closest I think to, to actually signing the game. But they came back and said, you know, this game is pretty expensive, um, and we we'd like to see you know more traditional gameplay with this concept as well. So we kind of went back to the drawing board, and in Unity we had we'd set it was actually funny enough uh, early on it was this guy named Matthew Brown who you may yeah. remember from Bioshock too yeah. he was he a was programmer a, yeah, he was a, like an AI programmer yeah. we hired I think I did I worked with a well guy we, we stole him and, <laughs> and brought him to Microsoft yeah. he and I left I think within a week of each other and we started working on this prototype and uh, and so uh, yeah we, we had this We I moved the the, uh, the surveillance like because we knew the, the game was going to be a lot about like, surveillance and stuff like that, and webcams and stuff. So we yeah. moved the camera, the game camera, to surveillance cameras. And right. all of a sudden, Hope is standing there, and it looks like Resident Evil 1. And I'm, like, super happy. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm like, whoa, maybe we could do, like, a survival horror game or something like that. So yeah. I'm, I'm, my, my favorite era is the 32-bit era, yeah. and I, I wanted to do a game like that. So, yeah, it's from there, it's just, like, 
you know, the narrative design of it is like, okay, what is she doing? What are you doing as a character? Who is she? What's her goal? What's her motivation? Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. She wants to escape. I didn't, we didn't want her to be, you know, shooting people and killing people. So right. stealth was actually just like the logical transition. Yeah. No, I, I, so I, I played, I played the first episode of Republic and I liked it a whole lot. I think it's like, I think that, you know, you, you kind of, I feel like one of your, um, goals was to do something that, that, you know, like appealed to console gamers. It like had the quality of like a console production, but on iOS. Um, and I've never, I've never really connected with hardly any mobile games, even yeah. like handheld games. It's just really hard for mm-hmm. me to get into them. Um, but I played Republic and I was like, I, this is, I love, <laughs> I like this, you know? Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm definitely, I guess, um, the audience, as far as guys that are like hard to convince to play a game on a handheld thing, but um, I think Republic really brought the presentation, but also like the the depth and playability and sort of the the robustness of you know design and mechanics and, and stuff to find and, and everything um, that that I engage with well, more and, and put it onto to to a, to a mobile platform. I think part of that was you know it it has the trappings of a, a big, you know, a big game. You know, it has, like, a world with fiction, you know, and characters and, and backstory, and, mm-hmm. and it has, you know, these a bunch of layering mechanics between the stealth and, like, the economy where you can buy upgrades and all that kind of stuff, but then it totally feels interface-wise and gameplay-wise like it's very native to mobile. You know, like, you you guys had the term that's, like, like like one touch well, interface, one touch, yeah. um, and and I think that <clears throat> it works really well and it's really smart. Where it's like okay, in Republic you're seeing through the surveillance system of the of the the facility, and so you can only your camera can only be in a limited number of places, but it can pan mm-hmm. and zoom and everything. And then you know you you always only have one input, which is which is tap, right? And yep. so if you're just in standard view, you tap somewhere and hope goes there. And right. it's like, okay, I get it. And then the thing that seemed really smart to me is then you have a modal thing, mm-hmm. right? Where there's always a button there. It's like you can pause and see all of the electronics and mm-hmm. shit. Um, and then it's just one touch to like open this door or hack this mm-hmm. machine or, or, or whatever. And, and it felt really smart to me because it allows me to do all of these interesting things that are actually, like, dynamic, you know, um, without having to juggle them, mm-hmm. you know, or without having to, like, drive hope around or... Remember like, what button you're supposed to press, right? Or, or like, oh, I I double-tap to hack that camera, but I tap to move her. And even the fact that when you switch modes, it pauses, so mm-hmm. you can actually think about, like, wait, mm-hmm. okay, I want to open the door, then unpause, then let her go through it, then pause, then close it, mm-hmm. you know, so you don't have to be like, oh, my timing was yeah, fucked yeah, up. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. like, all that stuff... Um, it basically enabled, I think, the depth of play that, that you wanted without it having to be like some really awkward, you know, mobile, mm. you know, fucking uh, uh, virtual thumbsticks. And like, a lot of these games have like 10 buttons on screen. Right. Like um, so, so, yeah, like I think that something that, that I felt like is Republic in a lot of ways feels very much like a cross between Metal Gear Solid and uh, and and Bioshock to me, like mm-hmm. the the yeah. environment feels like a cross between like 
Big Shell and Rapture. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's sort of like That's this, really yeah. this like dystopian state with a with, with a with an ideology and everything, but it's also an enclosed sort of militarized mm-hmm. facility. You know, it has I think it's interesting to me seeing that a lot of the 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 environmental visual stuff reminds me of sort of like Art Nouveau or Art Deco, mm-hmm. kind of like the beautiful architecture, and then the characters very much remind me of of Kojima style, style characters, yeah. like the the facial rendering style, but also kind of like the military dress, you know, <laughs> um, uh, yeah. aesthetic. So, how did how did how did you arrive at what? Republic became like what was the obviously you started from this point of like oh it's going to be this AI thing and then the perspective changed and you're like oh maybe it could be like a stealth survival thing but what were the steps from there to like all the specifics you know mm. of, of, of what ended up being in the game yeah I mean there's a lot of I'm, I'm actually sadly enough I'm forgetting a lot of like the initial inception because <laughs> um, we just spent so we did spend so much time like years you know developing a lot of these ideas um, well did they all sort of how much about like who hope was and what the the ideology of the place was and all that stuff was there before you started building and how much of it a, a, accumulated over the course of, of development so we always knew that like hope was going to be her own person that she's kind of a special kind of special mm-hmm. um, but the thing that 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 drives a lot of my decisions and it kind of drives some of our team members crazy is that it always comes back to me for to theme yeah, and so everything that you're seeing from the environment to the characters and everything is just is being drawn from something. And I've got a document that I keep continue to work on. It's like 100 pages long now. It's just things I'm pulling from TV or books or magazines or whatever. Yeah. And uh, whenever I get stuck, I just go into that and I just kind of pull, you know, yeah, pull sure. little bits out of there and, and try to loop it in and intertwine it into what we're building out. And so uh, Brendan Murphy, who's our writer, he we just sit down like every morning at the local coffee shop. We just kind of hammer through things. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, so really why the environment looks the way it does or why the more, um, there's like some metallic areas that why they look kind of like, it wasn't intentional to be like Big Shell, but I remember did, I did, I did put MGS2 in front of the art team and I said, when they told me we couldn't do reflective surfaces, I said, why can a game that came out in 2003 or 2004 do that? Or actually less than 2001. Yeah, 2001 was yeah, Metal Gear yeah, Solid 2. Yeah, yeah. Why, yeah. Over 10 years ago, they could do that on PS2, we could do this on iOS, come on. Yeah. And that was really... It drove them crazy, but I really, I really did put Metal Gear a lot in front of them to say like they can do this. Why can't we? Yeah. This is, yeah. So, um, yeah, I don't know if that's answering your question, but uh, yeah. Well, I think that um, you know it's something that that I was impressed by was was the 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 depth and the layering, and some of it is you know sort of inconsequential, but it's like it's it's compelling as a player because something that I really appreciated is you know. You, you do have in Republic a fair amount of like cutscenes essentially, you know, where a character you don't have hope is like in the middle of something and characters are talking. But uh, something I really appreciate is that you don't take control of the player away during that time. So you can switch cameras, mm-hmm. you can zoom in on individual characters, and you can like go into the, the omni mode, the pause mode, and like scan people during the cutscene mm-hmm. and see their, you know, their, uh, their, their ID profile and yeah, all that yeah. kind of stuff. Um, and, and I thought that, you know, that's, that's the kind of stuff that makes it feel like the content and the design goes far enough down that it's like, okay, yeah, there's stealth and hacking and, you know, like collecting these resources to get upgrades, but also 
every time I see a guard, he's not just a guy to avoid, but I want to like pause yeah, and like pickpocket him yep. and scan his ID and like, um, I mean, was was that the kind of stuff where, as you're going along, you're just kind of like seeing opportunities for that, where you're like, start from a baseline of there's going to be guards and you're going to avoid them, and then think like, like how you know what what was the process for, for for, for discovering you know, what, what the stuff that is kind of beneath the surface of mm. the game was. That's a really interesting question. I mean, it's like, with a lot of stuff that I do is, I'm, I was, when, when I, was, I was at Microsoft, I had an opportunity to spend a lot of time thinking uh, and researching about narrative design. Yeah. And uh, it's one of the, the things, probably my favorite thing about Gone Home is just, I think, how, uh, how smart it is in terms of, like, who, who I am as, as a character. Um, and, uh, and I know that I wasn't surprised, I guess, when I saw your game because I felt I felt like you were st- going down that path. Yeah, sure. Um, and I think that's something that's like something of a movement of the past five years. Sure. And I credit like one of your old bosses, uh, like Ken Levine, like making it really public, talking about like the push pull narrative and things like that. Yeah. And so, one of the exercises I did at Microsoft um, in my in my free time was I built the spectrum of who the player is in first person games, mm. and and I I realized that there was always something that was nagging at me, especially with third person games about Hey, I'm I'm player, but Snake is in third person. I'm kind of controlling him, but I'm not Snake. But I will say that I did something, even though Snake did it. And Snake's got different motivations than I do, and I, it always right. felt like a big disconnect, especially with Nathan Drake. Like that—that that is the biggest disconnect in the world for me. <laughs> sure. I just can't can't do it. <laughs> um, but uh, the thing that I like about first-person games is that oftentimes, like, it makes me feel more empowered about who I am. And a lot of games try to make you feel like you are the hero. Or right. Sure. But the thing that bothered me about Halo was that I never felt like I was Master Chief, um, partly because he was in third-person cutscenes, and you know, we, we gave him a voice. But you know, Cortana wasn't my girlfriend; it's right. Master Chief's girlfriend. So I built the spectrum, and on one side, like where it felt like there was a character behind, like a true character, not me behind the the, the first-person lens was. Games like um, like Riddick, right. um, or games like uh, Metroid Prime or yeah. Halo Three. Um, now with like Bioshock Infinite, with like Booker DeWitt, is like definitely his own person. Yeah. But then you go on the other side of the spectrum. You got like games like Fallout Three that really just let you be who you want to be. But there's still a little bit of backstory. I don't yeah. remember waking up in a vault. Right. But I part of the exercise of Republic was that I wanted to move it as far away on that other side of the spectrum where I wanted to be me as the hero. Like I wanted it to be Steve Gaynor as the hero who's getting this call from hope. Sure. And so people actually found that was really interesting is that when they came in and play tested, that they got some some people got frustrated. Like, I want to know who I am. Like, no, 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 you don't you need to know who you are. You are you. Yeah. It's you. And the game is like, no, 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 no. Like, what's my name? Like, <laughs> no, your name is your name, dude. Like, come on, let's play with me on this. Like, work with me on this. So but it is something that like the one touch gameplay is my probably my proudest thing about the game. But I think the second thing is just I was trying to create the most purest form of like narrative design sure. of the game. And so going to your question about like, yeah, how we came up with like a lot of these things is that I wanted it to be as realistic as possible in the sense of like, hey, if I wanted to, you know, pause a cutscene and I mean, I guess it's not, you can't do it in real life, but I wanted to, I didn't want to force players to watch cutscenes where we didn't need to have them watch yeah. it. And I think it's just a, it's in a movement that Bioshock, I think I, I credit a lot of ways is that they let you mess around and listen to audio tapes and stuff like that while you're yeah. playing the game. Yeah, they don't say that you have to sit here and stare at this. You know, you can be getting this one kind of content while you're still active, right? And there was, you know, I, I feel like there was also some of that a little bit in like Metal Gear games where you can like move the camera around a little bit and just sort of like it's a little, it's a little bit, weird, like, little, little interactivity um, here and there to make people feel good. But also that everything that can theoretically be skipped is skippable, you know, and 
I, I always appreciate that in in games, um, especially it 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 means that there's extra credit when like I played Republic and I saw that I could skip anything. I didn't want to skip anything mm-hmm. on my first time through, right? Yeah. Like it's the way I felt, you know, like Last of Us or something. Yeah, it has a lot of cutscenes, and I didn't want to skip them because oh, no they were way. interesting. Yeah, totally. But the designer said, "Hey, if you don't want to watch this, we're not going to make you." Right, right. and so it, it at least. You know, you, you're you're intentionally saying, no, I actually want to engage with mm-hmm. this, you know. Um, and so I really appreciated that in, in Republic as well, because I was like, oh, I can skip, like, even if even though I'm still in control yep. during this cutscene, I can skip to the next part where I'm, where Hope basically can move around again, mm-hmm. you know. Um, yeah, I, uh, I, I feel like um, I'm really interested to see where you go with future episodes. Because it's going to be like a five-episode game, right? Correct. So that's a significant amount of playtime. Like, I feel like I spent at least a couple hours, mm-hmm. maybe more, I think on, our average on the play first time, episode. I think our average playtime for episode one right now is like three hours and 15 minutes. I was going to say like two or three hours, yeah. yeah. And I did some backtracking and stuff because like I got some of the like hack the email upgrades late yeah. and stuff. Okay. So then I so went, went back, back through okay. and, and found stuff. Um but, but yeah, like what a lot of content? Yes, <laughs> there, there's a lot of content. Um, but yeah, what uh, what are the what are the challenges you're finding now? Because you're going into the second episode, and so the first episode, you just kind of got to deal with it. You can't yeah. go back and like change anything. Oh, so, we will. Oh, okay. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. So this, I mean, like to of, what degree? This, so that's one of the things that I'm most excited about this project now that now that we figured out like that one touch thing was the biggest nightmare it was a two year long nightmare going home almost every night feeling defeated worried that this thing is just not going to work yeah it yeah. was very scary extremely scary and what it really wasn't until literally like a couple months before we shipped where it started to actually work yeah but um the uh, now that that's done like we know where the core gameplay loop is we've we've, we've solved a lot of the, the critical problems of the game the technical problems uh now we get to work on content but the the thing that really gets me excited is just how we're going to approach Episodic, and it's a little bit different from what Telltale is doing, even though we follow their model very closely, especially from a monetization standpoint. Yeah, sure. But with each episode of Republic, we're going to go back and actually fix, we're going to update the previous episodes as well, um, just as we find more bugs and like add polish and things like that. Sure. So what I, I'm really excited about is like when I look at, when we finally have all five episodes out there, is this a 10 to 15 hour kind of, kind of like a Metal Gear length of game, plus... Like, what does episode one look like? Is it going to be as immaculate as I want it to be, where it's like you can, like, lick the floor, and, like, there's, like, this, like no bugs? Because sure. I was really inspired when I, I talked to one guy who worked on Metroid Prime, and uh, I was so envious of him because he told me that that game had been re-released so many times. Like, there was, like, a European version, then there was, like, the HD version, there was, like, a, I don't know, like the, the Wii version or yeah. something like that, that they had gone through so many times that they had found, like, really, really obscure bugs, and they, he felt like it was, like, the cleanest game that he had ever had experience working yeah. on. And I want episode one to be that. Like, it's my dream, you know? <laughs> but and you're talking episode. about, like, polish and bug fixes, not like we're going to go back and change this, the dialogue in this well, scene. Yeah, I mean, right? if we find an error, I, sure. I'm not going to call it retconning if we're doing that, but yeah, we're not going to, like, change it. <laughs> well, because that's dialogue. the thing that I find I found interesting about, about episodic, if from that standpoint, right? Um, like, uh, yeah, obviously more power to you. Like, you've, if you have the opportunity to patch the thing and make it a little better, like, that's great, but... Um, you know, I, with, with, like, a Telltale game, for instance, or even really with the way that we built Gone Home, mm-hmm. weirdly, like, we built the first, maybe, like, 45 minutes, hour of the game to submit to the IGF. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we got it 
to like kind of a beta level of finish and we did the voice recording for it and like made all the assets and it looked you know not far from mm-hmm. like a, a finished version and we submitted it and, and everything and went through the whole IGF thing and then we started writing the second half of the game mm-hmm. like we didn't know what was going to happen after the, the first part um, and it had that, that kind of episodic feel of like okay That's here's, here's this part of the story and we're stuck with that, right? Like, yep. the second half has to react to that. We can't say, oh, really, you know, that guy shouldn't say that. He should he should be her friend instead of the bad guy or whatever. You yeah, know? that's it's interesting. Like, um, Did you change much from the first half, then, as you got into the second half? The only thing that we changed significantly was we, we, we seeded uh, Lonnie being in the, going into the army. Okay. We figured that out really late, <laughs> and then we were like, okay... We're going back in to record in the voice studio. We can do one pickup and have edit in Sam mentioning her army uniform mm. into one audio diary. And then, like, we made a photo of her in her army uniform and, like, put it in a drawer. Mm. Um, okay, cool. But aside from that, it was just, like, adding little details and extra, you know, assets to make the, the place, the, the space denser. But aside from that, we were, like, that is established like like we have to make the second half work with that and i think it's a, it can actually be like a really useful constraint Absolutely. you know to say like i can't just say oh you know what i really want to go back and rewrite the first yeah, whole yeah, half yeah. you know um and there's you know there's been like great literature that's been been published serially mm-hmm. you know and, and you read it in in school as like a novel mm-hmm. you know but in fact yeah, yeah. it was written in chapters that's a good and, point. and you know um so are are you at a point where you are confident about like you know what the plot arc and all that kind of stuff is through the the end of episode five? Or are you kind of like feeling it out as you go? You'll laugh because it's it is ridiculous. Is that we we started building the game as five episodes at the very beginning, so yeah. we actually can play through the whole game from oh, start awesome. to finish. I mean that's great. Yeah, but it was like it was naive for us to think that at any point we could ship that thing as one whole. <laughs> like it was just stupid. We actually kind of got worried about the Kickstarter community because we've got like 11,600 people backed our game yeah uh and we didn't we didn't at the time we didn't know it was episodic yeah and we were worried that people were going to say oh you're just like dueling it out like, yeah but thankfully we we didn't promise a 10 to 15 hour game we promised like a i think it was like a three or four hour game so right we almost kind of hit that i feel like with episode one yeah everything is to me i feel like in the backers thankfully seem like this they're down with this as well is that they feel like everything is just kind of gravy after this yeah but so a couple of interesting things about how we built the game is that once we knew that it was going to be episodic, we actually, well, actually it was before that, I think, we started building episode two as our vertical slice. And so we got that pretty far along, and then we felt like we understood what the gameplay mechanics were and the tech and everything. So then we started building episode one, and we started that in earnest, I think, in like summer of last year. So we only, maybe we spent like maybe four or five months on episode one exclusively. And, uh, and yeah, so now what we're doing is we're just going, working on episode two now and just kind of finishing what we started. And that that also helped us inform what episode one was going to be because we already had this vertical slice that we right. didn't want to mess up with, mess with too much. Yeah. And so now when we go back and look at episode two, we know what that story is. So we have written all the episodes. Okay, we actually great. recorded and mocapped most of the stuff oh, wow. in all the other episodes. Yeah. It just hasn't had the time that, and the team to go sit down and focus and make really polished. Sure, so sure. I'm extremely happy to get episode two out the door because we've been staring at that for literally years. Um, and it's, it's, it's really cool. And yeah. We're really excited but about it. We're ready to have it shipped. <laughs> yeah. And my big crazy thing coming out of break now is that I don't know how I got this. Like sometimes I have these, these self-conscious moments where I worry about like how much I, 
uh, like was inspired by Hideo or whatever, but mm-hmm. he always liked these silly, stupid, most of the time ridiculous, like plays on words that get really stupid, right? right? <laughs> but I came out of break going like, what I really like about this game is that it's like episode one is like EP one, EP two, EP three. So my new thing, my new thought is that each episode I want it to be like an album, like yeah. a band's album, like the smaller collection <laughs> of songs, but they all have the, like a unique kind of package and like they all sound like that EP has its own feel yeah. and feel. And that's what I want. And not to take away anything from the Telltale guys, but I feel like Walking Dead, if you play it all like in a binge way, it, it feels like a one game. Yeah. Each episode doesn't feel like it's like its own weird thing. Yeah, yeah. But I kind of want to do that with Republic. What what form do you think that takes? Is it like the doing music. different visual branding and shit? Yeah, like, the, the color, the color palette, yeah. I want it to be different. Awesome. Um, I want the music. I'm talking to the composer right now. I want to use different instruments for episode two's yeah. soundtrack. Yeah, it's just. Oh, it sounds, you know, I mean, that sounds really interesting. It's. I mean, it's cool, but like, it's also just more work for everybody. It's more work, <laughs> but you know, it takes more work to make something better. That's true. Know. One of the things I got we got away with that I never thought we could was it was because of budget. Yeah, and is because we have we have one we have one voice for the guard. Yep, and you, you have, you have one not. guard mesh. It's all yeah. the one bald guy. Yeah, right. Yeah. And, Nobody, not one single player, not one single reviewer complained. <laughs> and I thought that's incredible because I'm like thinking about going back to MGS4. I had 16 voice actors. Oh, wow. We each guard type had like a different personality. Yeah. We recorded four different variations of each line depending on their emotional state. This yeah. is insanity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And nobody noticed. And it was a huge amount of work. And, and I think that, if I'm not mistaken, in prior MGS games, it was all the one guy in the balaclava mm-hmm, with mm-hmm. one voice. Huh? Yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, we had, I want to say, was we had like one? five or six oh, different, really? different voice actors doing very similar lines of dialogue. Sure, yeah. But MGS4, we went even further than right, that. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, again, like, I felt like we just. It I, think was really be, I think it's because they're so mechanical. It's like you think of. You think of them as, like, game pieces. Mm-hmm. You know, they represent a guard. So right. if they're all the same guard, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and I thought that, I mean, having them each have a different ID card, I think it was a more to... Yeah. Well, it, it made me think more about how they all looked oh, identical. Yeah, you know, because I was like, okay, they all have to shave their head to be a guard. That's fine. <laughs> you know, but, but it made me think more about, yeah, like, we, there's, they're different people, but... That's when funny. you're walking around, they all have the same mesh. We should totally like recon that where like before yeah, that the picture that they took, like it's in the ID card. That's literally right before they get their head shaved. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, thank you so much for talking to me today you, yeah. about about all your career. And uh, again, congrats on on getting EP one of oh, <laughs> Republic out. Good luck with uh, finally seeing two out the door, yeah, and then all the you. way through to the to the rest of the the series. Yeah, I'm excited to see what you guys are up to too, man. So are we. <laughs> All right, thanks for having me in your office. Great talking to you. Thank you.